each of us can appreciate the thrill that's ours to be able to be called a Christian. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, to borrow the wording of Acts 11.26. And so as we assemble, we do so recognizing that all the glory and the majesty goes to God our Father. And tonight as we look at a section of His holy book, the Bible, that maybe is a bit more unfamiliar than some, we come to the book that you'll notice I have used as the title of the lesson tonight. The book of Habakkuk. This is one of those books in the Old Testament that might be more unfamiliar again than some, but these introductory thoughts will at least prepare us to spend the next few moments tonight devoting our attention to this little book in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament consists of 39 books, and of that number, 17 of them are books of prophecy. And in fact, 12 of those 17 are minor prophets. As you can see on the slide, there has been occasion throughout the years when, at least in the mind of some, maybe it was a consideration that because they're called minor, they're less significant. Or perhaps because they're called minor, they're less important. When in fact, that isn't the case. They are inspired just like the other five books of prophecy, but they're just shorter. They're a little bit less lengthy than those other books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But this book, you and I believe tonight, as we reflect upon it, it will challenge our faith, it will edify and strengthen us if we will but take to heart those messages that we find written therein. It is with that in mind, you'll notice that the New Testament encourages us to give attention to a book like this one, just as it does all the others. For what was written aforetime was truly for our learning. I hope tonight, then, that as we come face to face with the book of Habakkuk, that we'll do so beginning in the following consideration with just a few introductory remarks. By introduction, I mean this. It would always do us well to appreciate somewhat of the history of the setting of these books so that we know who wrote it, what were the circumstances that occasioned its writing, and what was the problem or problems which they were attempting to, to resolve. With that being said, look at how this slide begins. God's people, the kingdom of Israel, they of course came to a time in their history when in fact the kingdom was divided. This was after the reign of Solomon. Inasmuch as the division occurred, the northern kingdom adopted the name of Israel and that's the name by which for the most part they were known. However, the southern kingdom was known as Judah. As you can well tell on that slide, that northern kingdom was such that they only lasted for a couple of hundred years or so, and then they were taken off into Assyrian captivity. That occurred in 722 B.C. But keep in mind, the southern kingdom continued onward. They had been a bit more faithful. They did enjoy some times of revival. But you will note this. The time did come when they too became evil. They too turned their back upon God and they too began to act and to operate in culture in a way that was very hurtful to the cause of God. When that, when that came, you'll notice at the bottom, God sent some prophets to directly tell the people of Judah, Captivity's coming. If you don't change, and if you don't repent, and if you don't turn back to the God who loved you and made you and sustained you, then you, in fact, will t 
terribly find yourself in this period of captivity. Now, some of those prophets, in fact, basically told them it's already too late. You have gone too far, and the sentence has already been declared. As you and I come to the book of Habakkuk, I hope that we'll recognize two things in this book. Troubled Habakkuk terribly. In other words, the very matter, the reality, if you please, of these things were such that they rested upon Habakkuk's mind. And in fact, as he petitioned to God concerning them, we shall find that they really have great meaning for us today. Without any further delay, let's come to the first issue. When I say the first issue, let's notice the first four verses of chapter 1. The first four verses of chapter 1. This will lay the groundwork and prepare us for the overwhelming reality of the first issue. But in many ways, this is a background to it. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. In those verses, Habakkuk makes observation of a set of problems which plagued the people of Judah. I've asked you to notice very quickly what they were. Habakkuk found himself at this time, and this was about 608, perhaps 607 B.C., living in a time when society was corrupt. People had turned away from the God of heaven. Could I draw your attention to some of the words that occurred in those opening four verses? Verse 2, violence was everywhere. In the society that nonetheless proclaimed allegiance to God, violence was abundant. Notice also verse number 3, iniquity. Furthermore, grievance, spoiling, violence, strife and contention. Verse 4, the law is slacked. Judgment doth never go forth. The people who were supposed to be dispensing judgment they were being bought with bribes. Whoever could pay to have themselves exonerated, they would go scot-free. Whereas others, who in fact really were innocent, and yet they'd be hauled before it, and because they were unable to pay, they found themselves with injustice. The society in which Habakkuk lives, you see, is somewhat a reflection of what happens when you lose God. Any society that very long goes without God, this is what's going to happen. You find troubling matters on every hand. Justice is a farce. Violence and strife are rampant. No wonder Habakkuk in verse number 2 cried unto God. He knew only God could turn things around. Only a people who would turn themselves to the God of heaven, change their way of thinking, direct their pattern of conduct, that'd be the only thing that could salvage it. It is with that in mind, you and I notice pretty quickly, that we'll pause for the first lesson of our lesson tonight. And I've entitled it this way. Habakkuk was a man of God. 
although he lived in this society that was so corrupt, so perverse, and so wicked, he nonetheless cried unto God that things might improve due to the influence of God. The lesson is apparent, isn't it? Just like Habakkuk, you and I will be bothered by a sinful culture. We will never be at home in a place that does not honor God. Christians will be troubled on every hand, persecuted, no doubt, in the midst of a people like those in which Habakkuk lived. Isn't it interesting in that connection? I haven't tried to write it this way. Isn't it rather ironic? In the midst of a culture that is so evil and perverse, those that are the cause of it being that way, they don't care. The Christians are the ones that care. The Christians are the ones that will be bothered by a sinful culture, and they're the ones that will plead to God for assistance and help. And they're the ones that ultimately are the only saving grace for it. Didn't Jesus say, Ye are the salt of the earth? Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the ones that are the light that you don't put under a basket. You are the ones that are the city set on a hill. And that kind of influence and that kind of lesson at least reminds us of the serious state in which Habakkuk found himself. No wonder with that in mind, why don't we continue that saga? What did God do when Habakkuk cried about this? Verse number 5. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I, that I is God, I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. I'll not read the rest of those verses that follow, but did you notice what God says? God heard Habakkuk's cry. Aren't you thankful that you and I have a God who has promised to have open ears to the pleadings of a Christian? 1 Peter 3.12 says it like this, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. Oh, how much comfort that has brought to each of us untold numbers of times. At this point, God heard Habakkuk. Did you notice what He said? Habakkuk, you need to get ready. I'm going to do something which you may find hard to believe. I'm going to work a work which you may find very disturbing in a way. I've tried to summarize some of it on this slide. In those verses that are just to follow, God promised Habakkuk, these people who have turned away from me, I'm going to bring judgment upon them. I'm going to bring upon them a reflection of the choices they've made, and it will be a judgment from me. You may notice in particular... Verse number 6, For lo, I will raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling houses that are not theirs. Habakkuk, I know you love this, this nation of Judah. Your heart is drawn to it because here's where Jerusalem is and here's where you've enjoyed worshiping to me. But this people have turned their back upon me. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. You and I better know them as the Babylonians. That's just another phrase, another description of the same people. I'm going to raise up them and they're going to come against this place and they're going to occupy it. In essence, I'm going to turn my people over to them to be captives. 
to be punished for their sin, to recognize the result and consequence of the choice they've made. You'll notice as we close that slide, Habakkuk's going to have an issue with this. Our study will continue on the next slide. As this nation was going to come in strength, they were going to be virtually invincible. Could I draw your attention to verse 9? They shall, come all, they shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Did you note the word captivity? My people, I'm going to turn over to them. Could we pause for another lesson? The issue of prayer. Did you notice Habakkuk prayed for one thing? He prayed that God's blessing would be upon Judah, that their hearts would be turned back to God. He prayed that they might enjoy again the favor they once had known. God answered the prayer, but it wasn't the thing Habakkuk prayed for. God's answer was different. That lesson leads us to note this. You and I should keep that in mind as well. We are urged, of course, to always be those who are given to prayer. Pray without ceasing in the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 and 17. And as we strive to pray without ceasing, it is always our goal to pray according to His will. James 4, verses 2 and 3. In this instance, it was not the will of God for this nation of Judah to be allowed to remain in this continuing sinful state. They needed to be punished. They needed to appreciate the end of the choice they had made. And so although God did answer the prayer, it was not the thing that Habakkuk had prayed for. Today, do you and I find ourselves sometimes disappointed We pray in earnestness to God, and yet the prayer isn't answered the way we prayed it. We perhaps might even become disappointed, dejected, almost in despair. When in fact, might we remember, God knows the future far better than we. We don't know it at all. When He gave this answer to Habakkuk, it was a message to Habakkuk, God always knows what's best. And when our prayers are not answered the way that we prayed them, may we trust Him, recognizing the fact we must always submit unto Him. I listed a few examples in the Word of God, those that probably come quickly to mind. Jesus prayed in Matthew 26 that the cup might pass from Him, but yet it did not happen that way. He nonetheless was forced to proceed through the crucible of that crucifixion. Shouldn't that be a reminder to us? My prayers are such that they might not be answered the way that I've prayed them. God's will may be far superior, far better than what my vision is, and therefore what actually occurs may be different than the thing for which I prayed. Paul prayed three times for removal of the thorn in the flesh, but it wasn't removed. But nonetheless, he did appreciate the sufficiency of God's grace to endure it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 10. In that kind of idea, might you and I remember, with God we can always endure. And His will is always such that we must in humbleness and in faithfulness submit to it. 
As you can already begin to see, Habakkuk had a bit of an issue with how what was going to be delivered and revealed. As you and I close that slide, may I say that perhaps the key verse in the whole book touches this basic idea. If you like to mark those passages, verse number 4 of chapter 2 is likely the high water mark of the book of Habakkuk. The last part of the verse simply says, The just shall live by his faith. That's quoted three times in the New Testament. Once in Romans chapter 1, once in Galatians chapter 3, and once in Hebrews chapter 10. The just shall live by faith. Habakkuk, you may not understand the wisdom of God, and you may not fully grasp the fullness of what He is doing in providence, but you must trust Him, for the just shall always live by faith. With that in mind, why don't we continue our journey and do so with the closing thought of chapter number 2. I'm sorry, chapter number 1. You and I have just learned that Habakkuk prayed unto God. And as he did so, God's reply was very different than he had prayed. Now let's listen to Habakkuk's reply. How did he answer back to God? Verse 12, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And Almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? You and I, I think, can easily sense the question. After God shared with Habakkuk what he was going to do, bringing these Babylonians, Habakkuk's immediate reply was, God, how can you do that? These Babylonians are worse than your people are. They're more violent. They're more cruel. At least your people have some semblance of what right worship at least could be. And you're going to raise up these evil, these heathen, these pagans to destroy your own people? That makes no sense to me. Can you put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes? He asks a question, God, you are of pure eyes and behold evil, and yet you're raising up this evil nation to punish your own people. This was a good question. No wonder you and I can imagine the issue that Habakkuk had. At this point, I would use this occasion in the lesson to draw your attention to a few of the details of chapter 2. Almost all of chapter 2 surrounds the particulars of the Babylonians. What kind of people were they? What things did they hold dear? What kind of culture did they endorse? I've listed them very, very briefly. May I ask you to note them? Verse number 5 of chapter 2, this is a description of those Babylonians. They transgressed by wine. They were given to alcohol. That wasn't just grape juice now. They were given to alcoholic beverage, and they thrived in it. Note verse 15 of the same chapter. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. That's not water or milk. The Babylonians were known for drunkenness. God was going to use a nation like that to punish His own people. 
Look at what else was true of this, of this people. Verse number 9, chapter 2. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. These Babylonians were rather arrogant people. They were brash. They were violent. Nobody had been able to stand against them. In fact, though we find it in a different Old Testament book, you may remember that Nebuchadnezzar was arguably one of the most well-known kings. And in the book of Daniel, this Babylonian empire was called the head of gold. Oh, how refined they appeared to be. What strength appeared to be in them. You'll notice here, they were given to things like drunkenness and pride and arrogance. Notice in verse number 12, Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. This nation, these Babylonians, they operated by blood. They would just as soon kill you as look at you. That's what they were known for. Not only that, Notice verse number 16 and following. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncircumcised or uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. By the time we reach that verse, we learn another valiant lesson. God told Habakkuk, Yes, I'm going to raise up that nation as evil and as ungodly as they are. I'm going to use them to punish my wicked people. And then, I'm going to punish them. I'm going to destroy the Babylonians. Doesn't that remind us of the fact God rules in the kingdoms of men? Those Babylonians weren't going to continue on with that sinfulness forever after they were the right and proper useful instrument to God. They too would be destroyed. And that came to pass in 539 B.C. And the years that follow, when the Persians were raised to mighty glory, they overwhelmed those Babylonians. As you and I close that slide, many things about those particulars are lessons for us. Alcohol is still sinful. Covetousness is still sinful. Violence is still sinful. You see, the things that God punished them for are matters of still great interest to you and me today as we would strive to please God. As we come to the next slide, what a good time to emphasize the judgment and sovereignty of God. Daniel was told several times that God rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel 4.25. And we notice here God was going to raise up the Babylonians, but He was going to tear them down at the right time. Any nation, you see, that forgets God, any nation that turns their back upon Him, Psalm 9 verse 17 says, they shall be turned into hell. They'll be turned away from the blessing and favor they once had known. The United States of America needs to learn and listen well. For if we continue along a pathway that is diverted from the truthfulness of God... Our culture will soon know violence and all the things that the culture of the Judah, the ancient Judeans knew. And our end will be no better than theirs. It's an interesting thing to reflect upon the major lesson of God's sovereignty. Every nation is such that His eyes are upon them. 
The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That phrase of Proverbs 15 verse 3 is certainly a reminder of the life and times of the prophet Habakkuk. As you and I continue on that slide, might you and I notice that God's judgment is always perfectly right. It was right in Habakkuk's day. It was right in Abraham's day. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 Perhaps in fairness, we might also note a fourth lesson. We shouldn't allow this one to pass by us too quickly either. What is it that led God to punish the Judean people? And what is it that led Him to punish the Babylonians? It was sin. God doesn't punish frivolously. He doesn't punish just because of something that's insignificant. He punishes when the land cries out to Him, Hosea 4, verses 1 and following, when sin and rebellion are rampant. God's judgment and His justice will reign supreme. That was certainly true in Habakkuk's day. Could you consider with me what sin is? Sin is not just hurtful to us. It is against God. Sin is a transgression of His will. 1 John 3 verse 4. And when you and I sin, when a nation sins, it sins against God. Acts 5 verse 4. Is it any wonder then that Habakkuk first cried unto God, hopeful that God would bring that society back to where it ought to be? But did you notice God's way of doing it was to send them to captivity? Although it's other books in the Old Testament that pointed out, one of the things we do learn is after they went to captivity and spent seven decades there, they returned to their homeland and they were better people. Never again were they given to the same kind of idolatry that they had been given to before. They did learn some lessons. The captivity did teach them something. It was a hard lesson to learn, but God's will was the right thing. Let's continue our journey. We hadn't made it into chapter 3 yet. Chapter number 3 is a beautiful collection that ends the book. At this point, might we note this. The book started with Habakkuk pleading with God to address the problems in the society. God responded by saying, I am, but I'm going to bring the Chaldeans. Habakkuk then replied, God, how can you do that? God then replied, look at this nation. They're given to wine, they're given to violence, they're given to covetousness and treachery. The only thing left, let's close the book. But let's start it in verse 20 of chapter 2. This is certainly one of our favorite verses, I would suspect, in the book. But the earth is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Isn't it true that that is the marching orders of anyone who would please God? You hush and let God do the talking. And you simply obediently follow what He says. In this case, the, earth, the Lord is in His holy temple. God has not abdicated His throne. He still rules and He still reigns, and you need to trust Him. It is that that provides the motion into the last chapter. As you can see on this slide, the first few verses of the chapter read like this. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech. 
and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known, and wrath remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. Habakkuk realizes, God, you know best. You know best. You raise up those Chaldeans because that's your will, and I trust that you'll do it right. And then, in due course, you punish those Chaldeans because you know what's best. But did you notice in that midst, Habakkuk prayed, Revive thy work. I use that to bring us to Lesson 5, the topic of revival. Revival indeed. Some of the most beautiful and some of the most remarkable scenes in the history of the Christian movement have revolved around the topic of revival. After all, when the Reformation movement sought to reform the Catholic Church and the universal nature of it, we remember how that that really didn't turn out very well. Denominationalism arose. And a couple of hundred years after that, there was a group of people, in fact, scattered around who realized we don't need to reform anything. We need to restore the New Testament church. And so that they did. They sought a revival of the Christian way, the church that Jesus bought. Well, consider these topics about revival. It could well be that you or I might well need that in our own life. Have you reached a point in your life when service to Jesus has become a habit? Has it become a ritual? You just go through the motions? The Lord demands more of us than that. Did He not say in Matthew 12, verse 30, If we're not for Him, we're against Him. If we're not sowing His seed, we're scattering abroad. Maybe you or I need a revival. Are you and I on fire for the Lord? That church at Laodicea, they had a connection to Jesus, but they made Him sick. They were lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Revelation 3, verses 14 and following, He said, I wish you were either cold or hot. May you and I never allow ourselves to fall into that kind of supposed Christian service. Habakkuk prayed for revival. He prayed for the strength that he and that people might realize the great work that God could work through them. Maybe you and I need to appreciate that so keenly ourselves. And as we close that slide, we come to the last three verses in chapter 3. After all of this, in which these issues troubled Habakkuk so, he closes the book with one of the finest, one of the most challenging, one of the most beautiful statements to be found in any of the minor prophets. Would you listen as Habakkuk said these words? Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord." I will joy in the God of my salvation. What an amazing statement. He had just been told, I'm bringing the Chaldeans. The place you love is going to be destroyed. That temple is going to be no more. 
And yet in the midst of a message like that, in the midst of perhaps how much one would have been heard inside, Habakkuk realized that God's way is always the best. And if we may paraphrase part of verses 17 and 18, he said this, God, even if I lose my house, if there's no food in the cupboard, if I am bereft of the security and safety which I I have so often enjoyed, if my flock is gone, my garden is destroyed too. Yet, verse number 18, I will still rejoice in the joy of my salvation. God, you are everything to me. And as long as I have that, that'll be enough. Isn't that a statement of conviction? A statement of dedication? A statement of absolute submission to the will of God? May each of us have a faith that deep. May each of us have a trust that unshakable. May each of us have a devotion that is that remarkable. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, all throughout the Word of God, we're admonished in that direction. And day by day, as we strive to serve the Lord, we should constantly try to remind ourselves of just how wonderful those teachings are. In Psalm 37, 5, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and following, and one last one in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, a working principle for each of us. The closing verse of that chapter points out, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I hope Habakkuk has been an encouraging study for us. A little three-chapter minor prophet indeed. But nonetheless, the issues that troubled Habakkuk's mind have led us to lessons that can be very practical even for us today. I've tried to summarize all of them on that slide. We as Christians will too be bothered by culture just like Habakkuk was. And because of that, we'll cry out in prayer unto God. God's answer may not always be exactly like what we had hoped. But nonetheless, we will always trust Him. And we will submit fully to Him. And lesson number three, God's sovereignty is absolute. Lesson number four, sin is invariably punished. Sometimes there can be a great need for revival. And oh, how badly we need the unshakable faith like Habakkuk had. Tonight, as you and I examine ourselves, I hope we've been motivated. And this week is a great week in our lives as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be, though, that as you and I consider ourselves, maybe we need to make some changes. Perhaps tonight would be the perfect time. If we could be of help to you tonight, perhaps as a wayward child of God, the Lord invites you to come home. Just like that prodigal son who came to himself in Luke 15, 24 and came home, you can do the same. We'd be honored to make note of your repentance and confession, and we'll pray to God on your behalf. If you've never become a Christian, though, why not tonight? Turn your life over to the one who will hold it invariably in the hollow of his hand, and one day he'll take you home to glory. That plan of salvation demands you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could assist you, how delightful we would enjoy doing it. And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.